welcome everyone to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo, and before we get started, I want to thank everybody for listening and also thank the contributors to my show, who are executive producers Candice Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, and Ms. Aida, psychic and author of Who Do Cleansing Protection Magic, Binaural Production Engineer Damian Keller, author of Sounds Good, Sounds Great, and monthly co-host Jared Murphy, author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us. If you are interested in contributing to this podcast, go to my website, everythingimaginable2020.com, and you can click on the PayPal button there and make a donation, and uh, I would say right now it would be much appreciated because uh I am currently going to be moving back to New Jersey, and gas is like three bucks a gallon. <laughs> and now, without further ado, our guest for today is John Michael Greer, author of More Books Than I Can Count. <laughs> Thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me on again. Awesome. So, you know, I've been thinking about a topic for tonight's episode, and I thought of sort of just like one big question okay go and, ahead and because uh, you've written on such a broad range of topics you know more than just the occult mm-hmm. um but i wanted to ask is it one is there a connection between the occult the secret societies and politics and if there is a connection between all these between these three mm-hmm how are they connected, and and how does it affect everything? Oh my, yeah. Here, here this is. I, I'm glad you asked that. Isn't that the proper response? Because in <laughs> fact, one of my one of my recent books, in fact, the I believe it's the one we talked about last time, The King in Orange, is focuses on that. But there's a lot more to say about it, because I mean, po- politics politics is the distribution of power in a human society. It's what happens when. Um, anytime two people get within shouting distance of each other, there's you know there's a there's a political dimension to that interaction. Um, who's going to make what decisions? Um, mm-hmm. Who's going to follow the decisions, or are you going to turn your back and walk away? That's all political. Anytime you're talking about decision making, you're talking with, with more than one person. You're talking about politics. And so, does occultism connect to that? Absolutely. Do secret societies connect to that? Even more so. But here's the kicker: they don't connect the way most people think. Okay. Point one: <clears throat> if your idea about the occult is influenced by Harry Potter or anything like it, please. Pull your head out from between your cheeks. <laughs> okay. Harry Potter has as much to do with real occultism as, oh, young Frankenstein has to do with real science. Okay? Um, let's start with that. Um, real occult, I mean, there's various ways we can talk about occultism, but the basic, the, the basic way of understanding it that I think is most useful right now is to think of occultism as the forbidden knowledge, the rejected knowledge of our society. We live in a materialist society. We live in a society that insists that only material causes can have material effects. That's the basic the basic principle of our modern science. Mm-hmm. You know, it has to be... Ma- now, all of this, you can disprove this instantly by reaching out and picking up a beer, okay? Right. Um, 
a non-material cause, your thought, your desire, your, your wanting a beer, has just moved a hand, which is a physical object. Okay, We all do this. Well, not all of us do this. Some of us drink soft drinks, say. But, <laughs> but everybody knows what it's like to, um, to have a state of consciousness in, uh, def define a decision and a physical action. We have all been startled and had our heart go but 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 we have all um most of us have uh, i would imagine have been <clears throat> sexually aroused and had certain physical responses <laughs> follow from that very directly all of these things are proof that the basic principle of modern industrial culture is horseradish it's simply not true but it is our basic dogma it is the belief system that that our elites cling to it's the belief system that we're taught in school it pervades everything in our world this this bizarre notion that if it, a physical a physical effect must have a physical cause okay occultism is what happened to all of the knowledge that's based on the fact that this is not true it all got rounded up and tossed into the dumpster at the time of the scientific revolution, starting, say, 1650, going on for 200 years after that. It wasn't a fast process. But you had this, this gradual process by which all of the knowledge that people had of how to shape things using non-physical connections, using will, using emotion, using passion, using all of these states of consciousness to shape the world, all of that got scooped up and tossed into a dumpster. And um, it was left to the occultists to come tiptoeing around at night, open the dumpster, get out their backpacks, and take it all in a hurry and sneak off before the alarm went off. Right there, you basically have the history of modern occultism. And we didn't get everything in the dumpster. Okay, there are a lot of there are a lot of things that were known in the Renaissance to say nothing to say nothing of what was known in the ancient world that we didn't get. So we're still piecing things together. We're still, you know, digging through the contents of those backpacks and going, okay, here we got, okay, we got this, we got this, we got, uh, there's something missing here. Can we cobble it together? That's, and again, that's what's been going on in the occult community since, since 1854, when a guy named Alavas Levy um, published his book, um, Doctrine of High Magic was the first volume, Ritual of High Magic was the one that followed and kick-started the modern magical revival. Mm. So... So that gives us so that that's that's kind of the framing thing. That's that's what's going on with occultism. Now, does that have to do with politics? Good gods, yes. <clears throat> when you make a political decision, is some physical object causing you to make that decision? No, Socrates, it is not. Um, your your understanding of the world, your ideas, your feelings, um, all of these things are motivating. You know which way you vote when you go to the, to the voting booth. So obviously political decisions are being shaped by non-material phenomena. And people, you know, big corporations, big advertising agencies, in their own corrupt way, they know this perfectly well. That's why they flood the media with advertising. Advertising is cheap sorcery. Advertising is kind of bargain-based medicalism. It's meant to manipulate you. It's me it's a spell. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 the example that I've used, I've, I've, I've used it quite frequently, but it's worth doing, is all those ads out there that are trying to get you to drink fizzy brown sugar water. Okay? Mm -hmm. Um. You've probably you, you you've I'm sure you've seen one in the last you know in in the last few days. 
typically I'll take one that was on a billboard here not too long ago. You've got this group of people. They're young. They're attractive. They're well-dressed. They obviously have money. They're having a great time. They're laughing. They've got their arms around each other's shoulders, and they're all clutching cans of fizzy brown sugar water. Hmm, they're everything okay. I'm not. Excuse me? They're everything I'm not. <laughs> yeah, you see, that's just it. It's meant – now, if I were to sit you down and say, if you drink fizzy brown sugar water, you'll be like those neat people, you'd, dis- you, you'd probably say, <clears throat> uh, have you been to your psychiatrist recently? Are you off <laughs> your meds? Um, because it's complete nonsense. But that's what the ad is meant to make you think, not at the conscious level, but down underneath. at the unconscious level and so it's manipulating you it's casting a spell on you to make you feel and to think again below the surface that if you drink fizzy brown sugar water you're going to be more like those people on the billboard now of course that you're not it's just going to give you tooth decay but but the whole point of it is to manipulate it's a spell and so when our political candidates are trotting around, they have their slogans, they have their posters, they have their um, logos, they have their sorceries. That's what we're talking about. They're casting spells, trying to make you think that they're going to fix things. Of course, they're not. We, we, we all know that by now, I hope. <laughs> no, but people don't and they have know. no intention of doing so. <laughs> You know, when 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 um, <clears throat> Brandon, shall we say, um, <laughs> when President Brandon says um, uh, build back better, he has no intention of building anything, much less building it better. Okay, he's just he's waving, he's casting a spell. He's going, he's you know, he might as well be doing the Harry Potter thing and waving a wand and saying something in ungrammatical Latin and having you know um, special effects happen. That's all it is. It's a spell. Now, if you know that, if you understand that, then you listen to President Brandon at his <clears throat> um, spellcasting, and you roll your eyes and say, oh, I see what he's doing. He's doing, he's practicing cheap sorcery. Mm-hmm. I'm going to ignore that. And that's, that, and that's my children, is why nobody is taught about magic in our society. Wow. There's a guy named Ioan Colianum. Um, he was a Romanian-American historian of religions, really interesting guy, um, shot dead in a bathroom in the uh, University of Chicago campus a while back, probably by agents of the Romanian secret police. But he wrote a fascinating book in published in 1984 called Eros and Magic in the Renaissance. And one of the things he said in this in this book is that Basically, the old-fashioned fascism, old-fashioned authoritarianism, think jackboots and armbands and secret police bashing down the door to beat people up, that is all so 1930s. That's totally passe these days. What we have instead are what he called magician states, states that use magic, but use the manipulation of consciousness through magical means like the ones we're talking about to control people and keep them um, baffled and passive and um, just doing what they're told. <clears throat> so that's what, that that analysis I think is spot on. That what we have, what's going on now with with all you know right now as, as we as we sit here talking across this country, tens of millions of people are sitting on their couches, staring at a television tube with drool puddling in their laps. Um, absorbing whatever crap the television is shoving at them, and, and you know it's garbage. 
whether it's the official news media, whether it's the propagandistic programs that all have their, you know, their own spin they're putting on things, whether it's the advertising. That, I mean, there's a reason they call it programming. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so, so, yeah, so there's a lot of magic going on in today's politics. And a lot of magic going on in today's societies. Okay, so that's that's kind of that's kind of part one of your answer. Mm -hmm. Secrets of okay, secret societies. Um, here again, we're de there, there's kind of a kind of a Harry Potter factor here too, because everybody, so many people who are involved in conspiracy theory or conspiracy culture, let's say, like to think that there's the, if there's a secret society, there's one of them, and it's all powerful and it controls everything, and you know, so on and so on. Um, no. If you're that powerful, you don't need to be secret. True. You don't. Why, why would you bother? Um, you might not publicize things particularly. You might, you know, when you get together in um, the, the, you know, 40-story skyscraper where, you know, where you have your meetings, it's not open to the public. But you don't have to hide. You've got too much money, too much power, too much influence, too much control to have to worry about that. No, no. Secret societies are a tool of the weak. Secret societies are a tool of those who aren't powerful enough to simply take control. And I can prove that very simply by, by talking about some historical examples. Um, I, I'm, okay, I'm going to start by talking about a country that was founded by secret societies. Yes. Okay. What country okay. is this? What country is this? What country is this? Is the United States of America? <laughs> hey, you've heard of um, the Sons of Liberty, right? Yes. Who were involved in all the the, the gearing up for the Revolutionary War? And if you remember your history classes from from school days, you may have heard of the you may have heard of the committees of correspondence, mm -hmm. which organized the revolution. Those were both secret societies. They had the passwords. They had the secret signs. They met in secret to conspire against the British rule, and they won. They did a better job of organization. Now, admittedly, they had Ben Franklin on their side, and that guy was a genius. And yeah. they had a lot of other really smart, really skillful people. So they, carry, they carried out their conspiracy. They launched it in 1775. It went kinetic. In 1776, we had the Declaration of Independence. 1782, the, British, uh, the last British forces in, the, in what became the United States collapsed. And woohoo, we're independent. Now, what happened to those secret societies? Well... The Sons of Liberty still exist. They have a name now. It's called the United States Army. As soon as they, as soon as they didn't have to be secret, they all put on blue jackets and tricorn hats and shouldered guns and went to fight. The Committees of Correspondence exist, too. We call that United States Congress. That's where the Continental Congress came from. It was the Committees of Correspondence. They... Now, if you've ever been to Washington, D.C. and taken a look at the Capitol building, you know... There's a lot of secret societies that would love to have a headquarters that lavish. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But yeah, that's basically what it is. You know, and the Pentagon is, is the, that's, that's where the Sons of Liberty hang out these days. So basically, this is what happens when a, when a secret society wins, when it, when it achieves, becomes strong enough to take real power, it doesn't have to be secret anymore. It morphs into a government, into a military force, into whatever it needs to be. Another example, um, on the less positive side of things, a um, whole series of secret societies in another country, this is Germany. Germany, right after 1900, you had all these secret societies that were organized around the idea of Germany becoming a world power. 
and they helped lay the foundation for World War One, encouraging Germans to think of Deutschland über alles, we're going to conquer the world. Well, that didn't work too well. <clears throat> so in the wake of that, um, one of those secret societies that was still very active, the Thule Gesellschaft, the Thule Society, was based in Munich. It had a lot of powerful, influential members. It helped um, stabilize things because Germany, right after the war, there were attempted revolutions. And they, they organized groups of, of soldiers who'd, who'd been laid out of the army, basically, and to, to, to you know, basically go kill the revolutionaries. It was a messy scene. Mm-hmm. But so they so the Tula de Selschaft was busy laboring away in secret, doing all all the usual secret society stuff, spreading ideas and um, making connections and whispering passwords and all this kind of stuff. And they moved to kind of phase two of their thing, which was to organize a little political party, which they could use as as a foundation. It was called the German Workers Party, the Deutsche uh, Arbeitspartei. That's right. Okay. So they have this little party. It has a few dozen members. It is not impressive. <laughs> but it's but it served its purpose because one afternoon in 1919, a young a, a young army vet came walking in and said, "So I want to know more about this party." His name was Adolf Hitler. You've probably heard of him. I have. <laughs> so they recruited him. They said, "My God, this guy can speak. He he has a, he has oratorical talent." They coached him. They groomed him. They trained him. They taught him a lot of stuff. They guided him. They fed the new party with money, and all of a sudden, he said, "No, no, you need to change the name. Let's call it the National Socialist German Workers Party." Nazi for short, um, national because that'll appeal to the right, socialist because that'll appeal to the left. You can see the guy's smart. Mm-hmm. So they went with that, and they said, "Yeah, this guy has brains." And so the as the as the Nazi Party grew, as it developed, as it became more and more more and more important and influential, the Tula Gesellschaft just quietly sort of folded things up, and its younger members all ended up as leading members of the Nazi Party or of the SS. And the older members simply retired and kicked back and, you know, um, continued to network for the Nazi party. And, of course, come 1933, they took over Germany. And at that point, the Tule, at that point, and this is the thing to watch, as soon as Hitler took power in Germany, one of the first things he did was ban all other secret societies. He banned the Freemasons. He banned, the, you know, every, all of the secret societies societies in Germany, there have been a lot of them. Absolute ban, you are forbidden to belong to any of them on pain of, well, the Nazis were pretty good on figuring out on pain of whatever they wanted. So, yeah, because Hitler knew perfectly well that somebody else could do the same thing to him. Makes sense. And he wasn't going to do any, he wasn't going to have that. But that's where you see, secret societies are tools that are used by people who are not strong enough yet to actually exercise political power. They organize in secret. They use secret society methods until they become strong enough. And then, you know, out go, up go the banners and the, you know, the people marching down the streets with guns on their shoulders. And whether it's whether they're wearing blue jackets and tricorn hats or whether they're wearing armbands and jackboots, it depends on the on what the secret society is there for. Hmm. So. As you see, again, there's a lot of politics in secret societies and a lot of secret societies in politics. They don't all agree with each other, and that's the, the thing that a lot of people lose. There are, there are secret societies fighting each other. happens all the time. Such as? Okay. <laughs> I was hoping you'd ask that. <laughs> I'm not going to do any, uh, I'm not gonna do any, any present-day ex- examples precisely because it's, you know, the, the ones that are running around these days are pretty secret. 
They have to be. You know, they're flying. They're flying under the radar. Um, I don't happen to know much about the really secret societies right at the moment. So let's go a little bit back in history. We have drumroll, please, the Ku Klux Klan. Now that was a secret society, and um, of during the 19 teens and 1920s, a very powerful one. It was um, anti-black. It was anti-Jewish. It was anti-Catholic. Um, its leaders actually thought very highly of the little guy with the mustache we were just talking about. Yes. Um, <laughs> there was a lot of connections between the Klan and the, and the Nazi movement, and so so the but the Klan the Klan was very effective. They they did what many groups do in the kind of um, kind of developing phase when when they can actually start exercising power they had their out their public activities and their secret activities and so publicly you'd have clansmen marching down um the streets wearing the masks and the whole nine yards um just as kind of a threat but they were also doing a lot of stuff in secret they were um they were making the connections they were doing the usual secret society stuff they were engaging in acts of violence against people they don't like all the same thing the nazis were had been doing just a little about the same time actually so you have that sort of the same thing but what happened in the case of the united states is that people in the u.s which had a lot of experience with secret societies i mean our country was founded by something as we just talked about so yeah. people were used to secret societies and went, uh-huh, we know how to fight this and so what was what happened was a whole series of anti-clan secret societies were organized um there was one called the knights of the flaming circle since the Klan went to the Knights of the Flaming Cross. Okay, I think there's a Tic Tac Doe joke in, in there somewhere, <laughs> but I'm not sure. But anyway, the Knights, of the, the, the Knights of the Flaming Circle wore black robes, not white robes. They didn't cover their faces. Um, the, the seal they had was a flaming circle with the Statue of Liberty in it. And their goal was to organize just the same way the Klan was organizing, but for the other goal, for to maximum, you know, basically to support the idea of individual freedom and freedom of religion and, um, you know, cooperation and, 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 you know, good relations between the various races and ethnic groups. That was their goal. They were very effective. There was another outfit that called itself the All-American Association. Um, their goal was to go undercover. Mm-hmm. And they didn't have a real public presence. What they would do is go undercover and get information on the Klan and then leak it to the media and to anybody in law enforcement who would do something about them. And they were effective. The Klan kept on getting busted. And then there was an outfit um, in Arkansas. And I don't happen to know much about what they did, but they had the best name of a secret society I think I've ever heard. They were the Anti-Poke-Nose League. <laughs> and they were opposed to anybody who went around poking their nose into other people's business, and that, which, you know, the Klan was, was high on that list. So the Anti-Poke-Nose League organized in Arkansas against the Klan. And um, I, I'm, I don't know... I don't know what contribution they made. Again, I've never been able to get more details than the name and about a paragraph of data. I would love to know what the ritual was like. (laughs) (laughs) But so the League of Anti-Pocnoses was in there, and there were several others. And this, one of the one of the things that one of the things that happened was precisely that the Klan started running into real problems. They started having their illegal activities suddenly become very public, which is a dangerous thing if you're a secret society. And you don't have everyone on your side. And eventually what happened was that the, the grand uh, the drag, I forget, I don't remember my, my clan, the clan titles very well, but the, the chief honcho of Indiana um, had this unfortunate habit of, of raping women and, she, and murdered one. And they 
caught him. And they splashed the information all over the media. And the Klan frantically tried to backpedal, and it did not work. And so the Klan lost like half its membership over the next few months. The guy in question, David Stevenson, spent the rest of his life in jail. And here's the thing. They threw him into jail, and he said, oh, it won't be. I'll be out of here in a few days. The governor will pardon me. And, of course, the governor had the brains to God's good geese and didn't just go, oh, sure, I'll pardon him, knowing what the media backlash would be. Stevenson melted down, and he said, that double-crossing so-and-so, and proceeded to blow the gaff on all of the corruption the Klan was involved in in that state. It was pretty. <laughs> <laughs> so the Klan took it, took it in the short and curlies there. And then um, that, was, that was, what, 26, I think it was? And then come the 30s, once the Nazis got really got going, the Klan was uncomfortably buddy-buddy with the Nazis. And the All-American Association, these other anti-Klan organizations, publicized that up one side and down the other. The Nazis were not generally that popular over here. And so that caused the Klan to just collapse especially once war broke out and, and a number of clansmen ended up being interned as, as potential you know, potential traitors and so that's why after the war the clan consisted of like half a dozen little fragmentary bodies that hardly had enough money to, to you know, pay the rent hmm. so this is the way the warfare between secret societies goes you know you have two you have two or more societies fighting each other and they're doing it in secret, by this, by things like espionage, by gathering information and putting it in the hands of, of the authorities, by um, you know figuring out who is the who is a puppet of the other side and neutralizing them one way or the other, it gets colorful. That's interesting. And, yeah, no, there's this whole history that people just that nobody wants to talk about, and I think the reason nobody wants to talk about it is that. The authorities are afraid that people will use the same tools on them. That makes sense. Yeah, you know, nobody, no, nobody in D.C. right now wants to think that there's there might be, you know, the, an order of anti-poke noses getting going that will go. Mm-hmm, <laughs> you know, you're trying to poke your nose into our business. I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> I personally think the order. It would be great to see the order of anti-poke noses revived, just just at, on the principle of thing, because there are so many people poking their nose into so many other people's business. And you know, with all of these excuses, and maybe it's time, you know, maybe it's time to use old, good old-fashioned secret society <laughs> methods to trip them up. <laughs> That's interesting. That's cool. Yeah. Would, would you put yeah. like uh, the like QAnon in a secret society category? Um, Q, QAnon. Oh Lord. <laughs> okay, I have a, I have a, I have a perspective on QAnon. Which I'll have to explain in some to give you some background here. Mm-hmm. Um, I did um, quite a few years ago now. Um, 2009 was when it was published. I did a book on the UFO phenomenon, which not very originally was called was titled the UFO phenomenon. That's brilliant. Uh, I had a slow day or something. <laughs> it, it, it was in there. It's it's there's a new edition out called the UFO Chronicles, and it is much expanded and improved. But one of the things I found out, one of the things I studied very closely in researching the UFO phenomenon, was the extent to which it had been manufactured and manipulated by U.S. Air Force intelligence. Okay. You look at all. You look at all of these, um, you know, amazing um, revelations. Whether it's um, 
you know the stuff about Area 51, whether it's the um, the uh, MJ12 business, the Project Aquarius business, the Planet Serpo business. It's all coming from people connected to either to the Air Force or to the CIA. And if you poke at it, you realize they're playing a game on people. Now, with the Air Force, it's fairly easy to figure out why, and we just very briefly, if you look at all the different uh, kinds of UFOs that people are talking about, and you compare them to whatever's being tested in our aerospace industry, gosh, the similarities. Hmm. The great example is in the early 1980s. All of a sudden, UFOs were, were black triangles. There were these black triangles flying everywhere. What were we testing in the early 1980s that Stealth. was a black triangle? Thank you. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so that's our UFO. And they created this whole aliens from space in black triangles to cover up the stealth program. That was the whole shtick. So the thing is, in the process of doing this, I, I, I studied a lot of these, um, these Air Force scams, basically. Uh, coming out of the Air Force Office of Special Investigations, that's their intel, their their you know counterintelligence wing, and you it was all it all had these very similar patterns to them. You had just it, it was just it was a, they had a standard playbook that they worked with, and you know they would leak some things and then they would they would say well you know we'll try to get you more and we're this this secret group that's kind of in on the inside and we'll leak you what we can and you have to do the work of putting it together and da 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 da. And so when QAnon came up, I was listening to this and going, why is this so familiar? It was the same shtick, the exact same shtick that the Air Force had been playing on UFO types for all these years. And so I think what, it, what QAnon was, was an intel, a disinformation operation, probably, on the, probably by people in the U.S. military, mm -hmm. intended to try to keep people passive, to keep them from... Um, you know, reacting to things. They, as long as they were too busy chasing down clues, uh, then there are plenty of other things they might not notice, and they might that might distract them from getting involved in politics and asking un, un, you know, um, <clears throat> unfortunate questions about various things that are going on. <laughs> and so, yeah, I think no, I think QAnon is a as a complete disinformation stunt, and a very effective one, of course. They, you know, they've had plenty of practice. They've been doing this since 1947, for heaven's sakes. They know how to how to lure in the gullible and feed them the stuff about the plan you've got to trust the plan you know we mm -hmm. saw how that worked that was a bad plan <laughs> yeah there wasn't there was never a plan in the first place it was just you know they they were again engaging in hand waving and engaging in distraction the same way you know the same same way they do now, the great thing about this is that at this point, I, I was really pleased to know when the U.S. Navy started saying, oh, we have this evidence for, for flying saucers, alien spacecraft, what's a UAT, they're calling instead of UFOs, yeah. people, people in giggles. A lot of people were going, gosh, I wonder what the Navy's testing this time. So I, I think, you know, some and, – and besides – the U.S. Navy, you know, they're coming out, we've got these photos, and these are photos that look like they were taken on the, the you know, the sort of co cheap Kodak pocket cameras that my sister had when she was eight. But they're not high resolution. No, they say, it's a UFO, let's grab the crappiest camera we can find. <laughs> if, the, if that's the best camera the U.S. Navy has on its ship, we are in so deep trouble. <laughs> 
<laughs> so yeah. Uh, so so now the thing is, QAnon is relevant here because disinformation is one of the basic gimmicks of using magic in politics. The people who were sucked into the QAnon hoax and, and you know dan- dangled along after it for all those months, they were under a spell. They were convinced. They were you know talked into believing in a bunch of palpable nonsense by people who knew how to manipulate them. And so that, that's, you know, that's one of the classic ways of doing politics. Um, it's, if you have to lie to people, you're being stupid. You're not mm-hmm. doing a good job. You, the, it's much easier if you can get people to lie to themselves. And that's so easy these days. It actually, it's always been so easy. Um, you just give, you know, dangle in front of people what they want to believe, and they'll make stuff up. They'll go trotting after you, even if it leads them right off a cliff. Wow. So is there a remedy for this? Um, well, there's an individual remedy. Um, I don't know if there's a remedy for, for because what we're talking about is being human. Uh, human beings are not that smart. We have this, this thing, you human beings, homo sapiens, man, the wise. We're not. Okay, we're, I mean, we do all our thinking with what? About, about a six-inch length of greasy jello called a human brain. Yeah. Okay. It's six inches long. It's not. It doesn't have a lot of room for really, really impressive capacities. You know, do we, we we've done fairly well, given that we're basically a bunch of balding apes with with ambition. But um, <laughs> but there's only so much you can expect from human beings, and that's just that's just the way it is. Now, you're not going to be so so. Don't try to make. Don't try to cure humanity as a whole. It's been tried. It does not work. Can you make changes in yourself to become more resistant to this stuff, to sort of take the initiative back, to become one who shapes your experience rather than having it shaped for you? Yes, absolutely. Um, The first thing that I advise everyone to do, and this is something that I did myself many years ago. I don't tell anyone to do something I haven't done. Uh, Take take your television and um, um, take it outside and put it in a dumpster. If you can drop it several stories into the dumpster, that's better still. That's what I did. <laughs> drop two stories straight down into the dumpster. I had to get out on the fire escape to do it. We lived in a small apartment in those days. And the flash and bang when the picture to it imploded was more entertaining than ever anything that had ever appeared on that screen. <laughs> okay? Because the television is, I mean, the television was, uh, if you go onto YouTube and look up Nazi television, you will get to see um, quite a bit of footage from the very early Nazi television broadcast. They weren't the only ones who invented it. I had originally read that it had, that they had been. But they were right there, right at the beginning, because they knew there was no better way to put Der Führer into everyone's living room and everyone's brain than television. Mm-hmm. And so that's basically, that machine is a means of social control. That's sounds, basically all it is. Sounds like a Frank Zappa song. <laughs> that would make a great Frank Zappa song. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, Q chorus of fish heads in the background. Um, but yeah, the thing is, Frank Zappa was not wrong. <laughs> no, he was, he was right on a lot of things. Oh, yeah. But yeah, and so, so basically, um, you know, the, the first step is to decrease your exposure to propaganda. 
Now, you can't eliminate your exposure to propaganda, although getting rid of, getting rid of your television and getting a good ad blocker on your, your internet access and is a good start. And by the way, any site that won't let you on if you have an ad blocker, don't go there. Don't bother. Mm-hmm. You know, if you don't know what the product is, you're, you are the product. If you don't know who the target is, you are the target. So, yeah, get a good ad blocker on your internet. Get rid of your television. Um, decrease your exposure to the propaganda because that's the first thing you can do to get some clear space in your head. And that's the thing you need. You need that mental clarity. Um, the other side, well, it depends on how deep you want to get. Um, any kind of spiritual practice, any kind of spiritual practice whatsoever. Um, I, I imagine we have quite a few Christian listeners right now. Um, if you're not spending 15 minutes reading your Bible every morning and praying, that's, you know you're you're not doing it right. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, uh, the one of the mo- one of the most profoundly spiritual people I have ever met was an elderly woman I knew in a lodge many years ago, and she was she was a very devout Christian. I forget which denomination, something Protestant. And her practice was that she would every morning, you know, when she got up, she would she would read a chapter out of the Bible and she'd pray about it, and. You know, she was an amazing person, just an absolutely amazing human being. So I highly recommend this. But, you know, whatever your faith is, whatever your faith tradition is, whatever kind of spiritual practice appeals to you, because all spiritual practice is is focused inward. You're not paying attention to the noisy world out there. You are alone with yourself, yourself and your soul and the God or gods you worship. And... That's, you know, in that privacy, in that solitude, you can get your head clear. And then you can go back out into the world and you've got a little bit of a space. You've got a little bit of distance there. You've got some space. You can look at the billboard with the people, you know, the, the people clutching, gla- you know, the cans of fizzy brown sugar water and go, I see what they're trying to do. That's cheap sorcery. And ignore it. <laughs> so you know and so the, and the more people who do this the thing there's the, the human, human consciousness there's there's this bleed over from mind to mind the more people who do this the more the grip of the sorcery weakens and so i highly encourage anybody you know whatever whatever spirituality appeals to you whatever if whether it's a whether it's the kind of occult stuff that i do whether it's you know um something something much more mainstream or you know whatever it is um that's a very important step and then of course the other thing to do is you can you can learn about things like secret societies you can learn about things like how politics works and you can start um paying attention and doing a little manipulation of your own because once your head once once your mind is clear once you've got some space there to think your own thoughts then you become able to take action you're not just a tool. You're not just an object being moved around. Um, you know, you have the capacity to make change yourself, and that's when the fun begins. Wow! So we could you could create an anti um, how is it? consumerism secret society. Oh yeah, oh yeah. It would be yeah if people were interested in that. Um, it, I, in point of fact, it's not specifically oriented toward that, but I have a book titled Inside a Magical Lodge, which is all about how, ma- how magical lodges operate and how they, you know, how they run things, how they do things and how you can organize one and run it. And that's specifically because a lot of people who are into occultism like using the old, the old lodge structure, but you'd use it as well for any other secret society. 
And you could organize something like that where, you know, everybody, you know, you're, you're meeting in private and you talk about um, what the media is not telling, what what the media isn't talking about. You talk about, um, you know, everyone's gotten rid of their televisions. And so you're going, OK, so what stupid thing do you see people doing now? <laughs> and how can we, you know, how can we start um, applying a little pressure here, getting some information out there, beginning to influence the school board, beginning to influence our at work, you know, and it spreads. Because once you have a group of people who are who know what they're doing, who understand what they want out of the world, and start applying pressure, not nothing. You don't have to do anything illegal. That's one of the other things about secret societies. It's totally legal. You just make sure that everyone understand everyone understands what's going on. Everyone makes these little gentle pushes at the right place in the right time, and pretty soon it's like a snowball. It starts little, and as it rolls, it picks up speed and size. Wow, that's mm-hmm. really kind of cool because that puts gives people some power back mm-hmm. in a world where everybody pretty much. Um, either feels powerless or is depending mm-hmm. on somebody else to give them their power back. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And that's exactly it. As long as you depend on someone else... You're, it's not you're happening. Not, no, it's not happening. The thing is, they... they one of the things that, the, that both political parties do, and every political party does this, every political party in the world, pretty much, um, they try to get... They, they aim to get captive constituencies. Um great example is um, the, pro, the pro-life lobby for the Republican Party mm-hmm. and the environmental lobby for the Democratic Party. Neither one of them ever gets anything they actually want. True. <laughs> you see, what happens <laughs> is that each one of them says, well, you've got to vote for us, otherwise those horrible people over there will get, will get into office and they'll do things you don't want. And so they keep them sort of tagging along, waiting for, you know, maybe getting a few scraps from the table every so often, while the people who actually run things, you know, as well as I do, the Democrats and Republicans are going to the same bars. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, the politicians are hanging out together. They're on the, they belong to, you know, they belong to the, to the one party that matters, the party of power. And they're not going to do anything unless they're forced to do something. And they're not going to be forced to do something until people start applying pressure. It's like serious pressure. And so, yeah, so this, this, the idea that you're powerless is the great lie that the political establishment always tries to push on people. You can't do anything yourself. You can't organize. None of this is good. All you can do is vote for us and then accept whether, whatever we choose to do. That's the lie. That's the, the, the thing that they push on people all the time. And in fact, you can organize. You can get together with friends. You can. I mean, there's a lot of people networking now um, in various ways. Um, you know, there, for example, I'm, you know, without getting into the whole vaccine issue, I know of I know of three organizations that have set up job boards for um, people who are not going to who don't want to take the vaccine, who are not going to take the vaccine to get in touch with employers who don't require it. And that's really picking up now. Um, that's the kind of organization you can do or people who are simply um, networking so that they can, so that various people can drop out of the official employment and they can work under the table or what have you like mm-hmm. that. And so, so they don't have to put up with all the crap that people have to put up with as employees 
you know, here's the stupid policy of the week. Um, please. <laughs> <laughs> I, I am out of that game now. Thank you, gods. But I'm um, trying. <laughs> I, yeah, you know, I'm, I, no, keep, keep, keep trying. It can be done. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, I, I, was in, I was in that for a while. I worked in various you know, minimum wage jobs and things like that. I know what it's like. And, yes, get out as soon as you can. <laughs> <laughs> it does suck. It's stupid. It sucks like a black hole. <laughs> so, sometimes I think like the whole monetary system is just another form of slavery anyway it's like maybe uh -huh. they never freed the slaves they just made everybody a slave exactly they just yeah you know you're perfectly free to starve in the gutter <laughs> that's yeah. your freedom um, you know other than that you work and you work on our terms for the wages we set under the conditions we and yeah and fortunately there are ways out of the game you're right that the monetary system is 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 gimmicked. Um, actually, I have a I have a book that's in that's right in the process of being reprinted right now, um, called The Wealth of Nature that talks in part about how the money system is gimmicked to uh, to manipulate people to allow to allow um, the the well to do to skim off to kind of like parasites, you know, like a blood sucking leech, um, on every economic transaction. So yeah. Hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I always think um, trade would be better. Just just trade yeah. one thing for another, a service mm -hmm. for another. An mm -hmm. equal exchange of energy is what it's supposed to be. Yeah, yeah. The thing is, there's yeah, the barter barter economy like that, where you're just trading stuff without without reference to money. That's a way some, a lot of people do it. There's also a lot of gift economy, a lot of customary economy, where you just you, you set up you set up an arrangement whereby. You know, somebody's producing. You know, like I, I I'm, I'm a barber, mm -hmm. and I'm gonna cut. I, you know, anytime, anytime you need a haircut, come in here and in exchange. You're gonna fix my truck whenever it needs it, and you just have some have an arrangement like that, and both sides do it, and the truck runs fine, and you know everybody gets their haircut. And so, you know, where it's not, it's not a tit for tat kind of trade. It's just that everything's arranged so that you know somebody knows something. Somebody knows somebody, and and you know, it all manages to get done one way or the other. Yeah, you know, and I've also always like personally, like, I consider myself an anarchist. Mm -hmm. and, and people think like, oh, it's crazy, like people are around killing each other. But the idea that I understand from from anarchism is there's no central power in control, and you just have little um, democratic unions of people fulfilling mm -hmm. needed services, and that's it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you have something like that, as long as you've got some kind of an arrangement to deal with people who aren't willing to follow the rules, mm -hmm. um, and that's that's the the one rock on which a lot of anarchist theories crack because they they don't want to have that coercion. But if you're willing to have, you know, the functions of local government, yeah. if you're willing to have, you know, arrangements so by so you know if if there are there are a set of laws and you know, necessary laws, like you can't murder people and get away with it. And if somebody is not willing to abide by those laws, well, you know, oh well, <laughs> you have to be dealt with. And so, yeah, the, the thing is, this kind of thing can work. It has worked um, in many parts of the world. 
And it's just it's you, you get you get people being too intellectual about it and saying, No, we must do without coercion and live in live like angels. We're not angels, okay? No. <laughs> We're apes. <laughs> we live like apes. And so we can live like smart apes or we can live like stupid apes, but we're gonna live like apes. <laughs> <laughs> Consult, consult your local baboon. <laughs> they'll, they'll explain it to you. <laughs> That's interesting. You know, I, I made a joke the other day. I was doing a podcast, and I was talking about how I was thinking about running for, for president as an mm -hmm. anarchist. <laughs> Somebody, he asked, he goes, I like that. He asked, he goes, what would be the first thing you'd do if you were elected? And I was like, I'd fire myself, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, I wouldn't be a true anarchist if I did anything else but that. <laughs> you know, if you were to run for president on that platform, actually, that should be the second thing you do. The first thing you should do is fire the entire federal bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> Just fire them all and then fire yourself. If you were to run for president on that platform, I think you'd get pretty far. I don't think you'd get to the White House, but I think you might find yourself much more popular than you think. <laughs> uh, I might really consider this. <laughs> I can say, give it a thought. It, could, it would be very entertaining. There are a couple of countries in the world that have introduced a, a program where they have the, you have the right to vote for none of the above. Mm -hmm. And if none of the above gets the majority, all of the current candidates have to step out and then a new batch of candidates runs. That's a good idea. <laughs> I think it's a great idea. Um, <laughs> it's like it's like back in the back in the day. I don't know if this has been, you know, this has got to be some years ago. Um, the guy, guy who went by Wavy Gravy ran the um, the Nobody for President campaign. <laughs> you know, who can solve our economic problems? Nobody. Who kept the treaties with the Indians? Nobody. And <laughs> and you know, who is you know, who can we trust to be absolutely free of corruption in politics? Nobody. <laughs> so he he made quite the you know quite quite the little statement with it. <clears throat> but you know, you, you should, I, I think I think running, running for president running for president of the anarchist ticket you'll need a, you'll need a running mate of course. So see if you can find somebody, and and you know, get out there and campaign. I think. It would be hilarious, <laughs> and watching the and especially why if if it got big enough, the corporate media couldn't ignore it. Watching them scrambling around trying not to talk about it would be hilarious. It would be. They would hate it. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. It would be, it would be enter, entertaining to the nth degree. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't even think anybody has. I mean, I guess I'm sure people have tried it, but nobody's probably ever been really successful at like, breaking into the mainstream with that. Oh, it happens. It happens every so often, but um, hasn't happened in America since a guy named um, Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> no, the the Republican Party was mm -hmm. a fringe party up until 1860, and it just it was the only party that was willing to talk about actually ending slavery, and so it suddenly went from a little bitty fringe party to uh, you know, okay, Mr. President, <laughs> welcome to the White House. So uh, it may be a while before we get there again, but um, you know, um, but it can happen. Hmm. You know, you bring up like another interesting point, though, that that other countries have these other types of fail safes in place, and mm -hmm. we don't. And one of the things they never, at least I was never taught about in school, mm -hmm. 
was the governments of other countries. Mm-hmm. I've only been taught about our government, and that is the yeah. best. But nobody's ever taught me about somebody else's government and said, yeah. well, here's another well, this, option. This, this, this is the thing. We are running Democracy 1.0. Okay? We are run- the, the United States was one of the very first nations in the modern world. I think it was the first, actually independent nation in the modern world to adapt to adopt something approximating a democratic system of government and so yeah we're running 1.0 it has a lot of bugs Mm -hmm. most other nations have learned from those and said okay let's upgrade (laughs) but the united states has not upgraded well we've we've done we've done some patches we call them amendments to the constitution but we haven't actually had a thorough upgrade yet and so we're running this creaky old um, democracy 1.0 and it you know and it's not really working that well these days maybe we need to look at some of the available upgrades some of the things that other countries have done um, like um, I mean most countries for example restrict the president to one term yeah no they make it a longer to him they give him like six years mm-hmm. and then he's out the door he cannot run again that would be such an improvement big time Big time, exactly. So, yeah. So you have things like that. There's there's all kinds of things you can do, um, you know, that that could be done with a with a modest number of amendments to the Constitution, and you know, it's yeah. I think I think maybe it's time for us to think about that to look at the some of the other successful democracies in the world and say, okay, um, why do you how do you avoid these problems that we're having? You know, we have all these controversies about is the voting fair. Most other countries have much better ways of making sure their ballots are, are properly counted. Uh, I mean, go across the border to Canada; they do a really good job of making sure that there's a strict chain of possession for who has the ballots. There are people of every party following the ballot boxes every inch of the way. There's no controversy. Here, we're still weighed down in controversies over the 2020 election. And so, you know, we could, it would be a really good idea if we were to upgrade our version of Democracy 1.0, you know, put in that nice little patch, some of those nice little patches from, say, Canada, so, you know, we can do the election and everyone is confident their votes were cast the way they were, or were counted the way they were cast. What about the Electoral College? That's that's another very complicated one. (laughs) Um, The thing is, there's a point to having a system so that um, a handful of, of big states can't simply run the country the way they want. And that's what the electoral college is for, you know. So basically, the way it, the if we just did it by absolute um, numbers, um, whoever California, Illinois, New York, and New York State voted for would probably win, even if the rest of the country hated the guts. Mm-hmm. And so, having some kind of control in place to keep that from happening is is a good idea. Hmm. But does it have to be done the way we're currently doing it? Mm, quite possibly not. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't know. I just never really understood that whole thing. That's why I just never bothered voted voting because I'm like, <laughs> well, does it really count? <laughs> you know? oh, like, it might count in small elections, but when it comes yeah. to a presidential election or yeah. stuff like that, I, I, I always vote. Um, basically, whether you know, I, I, I honestly don't know whether my presidential um, vote counts worth with the squad at this point. But there are always local elections that matter. There are always um, initi- initiatives and ballot measures to vote on. Um, and you know, 
if you live in a in a relatively small city like I do, who your city council members are and who your mayor are actually make a lot of difference for your quality of life. So definitely, I, I would I encourage people to vote, if only for the local elections. And you you can always vote for the anarchy if you, when the when the presidential election comes up, you can always vote for the anarchist candidate, who who who's prom who's promising to fire the federal bureaucracy and then resign. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, like, like where I live, like now in Alabama, mm -hmm. it's like the same families have just been elected for the last two hundred years. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah, aristocracy, <laughs> aristocracy pretending to be to be democracy. Mm -hmm. Now, I I, he I heard you saying you are going to move to New Jersey. That's got to be a change. I'm actually originally from Princeton. New Jersey. Oh, okay, gotcha. Yeah, and I moved to Alabama, but now I'm going mm. through a divorce, and I'm going to move Ooh. back to be by my family. Okay. Okay, well, yeah. yeah. Um, I have not spent a lot of time in, in New Jersey, despite, but I've been there despite its reputation. It's kind of a nice place. Parts of it are. There's a lot mm -hmm. of traffic. You have to learn how to be still. <laughs> yeah. Well, you can always get you always get something close to the Pine Barrens and hope the Jersey Devil comes. Actually, comes that's around. where that's where I'm going. That's oh, sweet. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I actually I actually researched the Jersey Devil because um, a couple of my novels. I have to do with a town in, well, there's one particular that has to do with an imaginary town in, in New Jersey. And the Jersey Devil plays a minor role there. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, I am going to be living in the heart of the Jersey Devil. Ooh, country, so. Ooh excellent. Well, th there you go. <clears throat> Maybe you can get the Jersey Devil to appear as a guest on your podcast. Uh, that is definitely one of my goals, is to get <laughs> him. I want to know what the Jersey uh -huh. Devil's been up to for the last hundred years. There and, we go. Yeah, and, and why he just seems to fly around, walk on people's roofs, and scare kids, and then takes off. And then just takes off. Yeah, exactly. Like, why? Why? What's what's he up like, to? Well, yeah, like, actually, is that some type yeah. of consumerism propaganda? Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> maybe he just maybe he's just really really curious about us. Could be. Could you be. Know, he's just landing someplace and peeking in the window, going. What are these weird people up? To, these weird creatures up to? Yeah, actually, um, the the new edition of my book Monsters, mm -hmm. which is, um, is which is will be out uh, should be out for Halloween, in fact. Oh, awesome. um, But it ha it has a sec it has a discussion of the Jersey Devil, and since I've updated it, I included some material on the Jersey Devil and so on, and and the Jersey Devil and Chupacabra and a variety of other um, the really weird critters. Dogman. Um, uh, oh yeah, I've got Dogman in there. Goatman? I do not have Goatman. Mm. I'll have to look up Goatman. Hey, there, there's, you know, not a, little... there's not a whole lot out there on Goatman. Okay. I just did an I'll episode keep... on Goatman, but... Oh, sweet. Okay. <laughs> I'll, keep, I'll, keep, I'll keep my ears open. I mean, Monsters and me go way back. I was crazy about Monsters when I was a kid. Me too. Yeah, it's one of those things. You know, in my case, growing up in the South Seattle suburbs where everything was pretty and plastic and incredibly dull... I wanted anything that would make the world look more interesting than my parents and teachers and the media insisted it was. And so my, I loved monsters. I adored mm -hmm. monsters. I read everything about monsters I could find. This was before we even had Chupacabras. I would have loved Chupacabras. But, I mean, one of my favorite books from my, my misspent youth was um, John Keel's The Mothman Prophecies. Okay. I don't know if you've read that. Yeah, I've seen the movie. Oh. Yeah, I haven't seen the movie. But I, but I read the book. Oh man, talk about a journey into the into the world of the weird. I loved it. Um, 
and still have a copy too. Awesome. But yeah, um, but I, I will I will definitely look up Goatman. But Dogman, yes. Um, there, I was able to get some through the library system here in Rhode Island. I was able to get some good books on Dogman, and so um, he appears there in all his canine glory. Cool. So, yeah. do you think that there is any possibility that these cryptids actually exist? And do you think that the only that the are actual animals, or do you think that there's actually the possibility of something crossing over from the another dimension or the astral plane? I think in many, many cases, it is very much something crossing over from other planes. Because, I mean, there, there are there cryptids? Yes. Are there actual physical animals? I mean, I, again, I used to live in the Pacific Northwest. Um, big, Bigfoot, Bigfoot is an ape. Okay? He acts like any other big ape. He's probably a descendant from the Gigantopithecus, which lived all over Asia, what, five, six million years ago? Just a eye blink. Um, but then you get other things that are not animals that like suddenly disappear physical animals don't do that they don't mm -hmm. just suddenly you know like you have these weird footprints going through the snow and they stop <laughs> and there's nothing what happened obviously something went somewhere else and so yeah a lot in fact my book on monsters one of the things I, I talk about primarily are the are the creatures that violate the sort of scientific notion of reality, the ones that are not just material or not material at all. And so you've got, you, you've got quite a few things like that. Um, Dogman is one of those kind of on the borderline because he acts kind of like a physical creature and kind of not like a physical creature. So is he, is he something, is, is he an actual cryptid, an actual animal? Probably not, but I'm not gonna. I'm never gonna say never on in his case. Mm -hmm. But when you get something like the chupacabra, you're dealing with something that is not a physical creature. You're dealing with something that can leave physical traces. But you know the the chupaca, the ones that sort of levitate up in the air, turning rainbow colors and then vanish. We're you know Toto. I don't think we're in Kansas anymore. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Exactly. Or, you know, and, you know, what is the Jersey Devil? I just, that's a great example because it's this weird, uh, it's probably the basis if, if, you know, any you or any of, any of our listeners know their H.P. Lovecraft, the Shantak, mm -hmm. um, which has the head like a bird and big wings and, and you know, hops on its, it's, it's, it's Shantak's probably based on, on um, the Jersey Devil. I certainly equated them in my, in my novels, but, um, but so you've got, um, you know, is it a physical thing? Is it a metaphysical thing? We don't know, but I, I tend toward the metaphysical. I don't think it's likely that they're physical creatures. There are cryptids that are, again, but probably not that one. Since you're from the Pacific Northwest originally, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. do you think that the government knows that Bigfoot is an ape and is covering it up to help protect the logging industry? Um, it's... It, it's complex. I think it's a lot more complex than that. But that, but I think, I think that everybody who might say yes, it's an ape, desperately, you know, anybody in authority desperately doesn't want that to come up. Think of these squabbles over the Endangered Species Act. I mean, yeah. um, there it would throw. It's not. I mean, the logging industry would be affected. Just about every industry in the Pacific Northwest would be affected. While people tried to had to find out what are you know, what is its home range, um, what does it live on, 
Um, how many are there? Where do they range? You know, where do they roam? It would be a complete have it just the sh- thinking of the amount of paperwork that they'd have to fill out. <laughs> I mean, you, you you got you got to realize there there are bureaucrats in the Washington State Department of Natural Resources who are going no 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 hiding under their desks at the thought that somebody might find a dead Sasquatch in the woods. That's a Bigfoot. <laughs> no, no, anything, but yeah, because it would be a total nightmare for them. So everyone's just kind of turning their back and going, we're not, we're going to insist that this thing isn't real so we don't have to deal with it. <laughs> one, one, one of my basic rules for explaining government activity, by the way, never blame on conspiracy what you can explain through stupidity. <laughs> stupidity and corruption. Um, because, you know, um, most human government, again, human beings aren't that smart. Human governments are much dumber than individual human beings. And they're, and they're basically all corrupt. Everybody's going to be taking money from somebody. Yeah. And so um, if, you say, if you assume that they're, behave, that they're acting out of stupidity and corruption, you'll normally be able to, A, predict exactly what they're going to do, and B, explain what they're going to do. So that's my basic rule, and that's that's why I don't tend to do a lot of the conspiracy culture things. I, I assume yes, things are being covered up, but they're being covered up because somebody's desperately hoping that their their incompetence or their corruption is is not going to end up on the front page. <laughs> that is the funniest Bigfoot theory I've ever heard. <laughs> Somebody just doesn't want to do the paperwork. It's, they don't. They don't want to do the paperwork. I mean, do you realize what kind of paperwork in the state of Washington or in the state of Oregon? The kind of forms you have to fill out to deal with the Endangered Species Act, they literally have to get an environmental impact statement. They have to, in fact, they'd have to revise all the environmental impact statements that have ever been filed in the state of Washington to deal with the Bigfoot. <laughs> That's such a good theory. I wonder if the same thing applies to archaeological findings because oh that's i could see that too because among other things there's this very complex standoff especially in the western part of the country between um native american tribes Mm -hmm. and the federal government and if it turns out that the native native american tribes were not the first people on that land oh boy yeah, I guess that's more paperwork, right? It would be it would be a total nightmare for everybody involved, and so yeah, everyone just goes, uh, "We're not going to talk about that possibility." They grit their teeth and hope it'll go away. Wow, that's something that comes up on my podcast constantly. Oh, is about uh-huh. like who is actually in North America first? You know, <laughs> <laughs> that that'll keep you hopping for. That's I, I'm I'm glad you mentioned that though. One of um one of the my my current projects right now, um some years ago I wrote a book on Atlantis, and it badly needs revision. I'm it's probably I'm I'm less satisfied with that than any of my other books so far. It badly needs expansion. There's been so much more information dug up, and um so much more about North American archaeology. And since according to Plato, Atlantis was very close to North America, mm-hmm. it was it was in it was in the far western Atlantic, um that, so. Things like you're talking about right now, that's all stuff I'm going to be researching over the next six months. Oh, you're going to have to talk to Frank Joseph. I have it in mind. Because he knows every, in fact, he knows, he thinks he knows where Atlantis is. Okay. So he's actually trying to raise money to to go on an expedition to to Uh see if it's actually there or not. Okay. He's amazing. 
Okay, Frank Joseph. Yeah, I have noted. I have noted down his yeah. name. Yeah, he's written more book more books on Atlantis than any other author. Wow. Okay. Well, then I will doubtless be reading him in great great length in the yeah. near future because I'm I'm getting every book on Atlantis that the um our local library mm-hmm. system has, and it has quite a collection. And he'll also like he'll he'll talk to you. He's a really nice guy. Cool. I had on a couple of times. Mm-hmm. That's cool. So, so what is your theory? So, you think Atlantis was off of the coast of America? Oh yeah, basic. Well, the, the, my 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 original theory, the theory that I published back in what was it, two thousand eight, two thousand seven, around then. Um, basically, I had been looking at the evidence from the the Bimini Road and some of the other submerged um, discoveries um, in the in the Bahamas. Yeah. And then I looked at the fact that the date that Plato gives for the sinking of Atlantis is right about the point when the ice, the great glaciers of the Ice Age, hit their highest rate of melting. Mm-hmm. And so you had um, seawater, sea level rising hundreds of feet over, over actually like 100 feet in a fairly short period. Because um, talking about global warming, um, temperatures in, 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 the, in the northern hemisphere rose dramatically in a very short time. And so you had a lot of areas off the east coast of North America, um, areas like the Bahamas. I mean, the Bahamas used to be mountains rising out of a big island. That big island is, I think, the island that was the the source of the Atlantis legend. I think that's a good possibility. There's a a place here Mm -hmm. in Louisiana called Mm -hmm. Port Poverty. If you... Uh And it it has the concentric rings, and it looks just like Atlantis. Uh-huh, and uh-huh. one of the things I'm, I always think is like maybe so many Atlanteans survived, and they created oh, yeah. structures that were like the original city, just mm-hmm, sort of mm-hmm. as like a tribute or a reminder to oh, yeah. to it. Oh yeah, that that's one of the th- one of the things that I'm that I'm doing here in this in the revision is taking a look at the various occult traditions about atlantis some of which were have turned out to be or atlantis and other ancient civilizations i should say some of which have turned out to be remarkably accurate and saying okay if this is true what follows one of those traditions is that atlantis did not go under all at once it went under in three stages there were three great inundations and during and after each of those, a lot of people fled. Yeah. A lot of people you know, piled into boats and got out while they could. And so, um, and so yeah, the, the, the theory would, would be that there would be endless settlements of Atlantean survivors in, in what was high ground all around the Atlantic Basin, in Europe, in Africa, in North and South America. And so one of the things that I um, – Poverty Point is the name? Poverty Point in Louisiana. Poverty Point in Louisiana. Okay, I have made a note of that because that's one. Because, yeah, I mean, that, any place that was close uh, to the that, Gulf of Mexico. The Eye of, very, the eye of Africa also uh-huh, yeah, yeah. Is, has the same type of structure. Yeah, so there may be a whole series of these Atlantean, um, you know, post-Atlantean settlements, basically. And so it's a matter of doing the research, checking the archaeology, checking the, the climatology, the the records of the ending of the Ice Age and so mm-hmm. on, and try to make sense of all the data, try to come up with a hypothesis that makes sense of it all. So it'll be it'll be interesting, but um, I'm just I'm just starting that at this point. I have I have wonder one of Andrew Collins's books on Atlantis uh, sitting by my you know by my seaside of the couch right now. Great, great. Mm-hmm. You know, Atlantis was something that I didn't quite believe until I started mm-hmm. doing this podcast and doing. Mm-hmm. 
um, you know, interview after interview after interview on Atlantis and mm-hmm. some of the history of North America, and now I'm a hundred percent convinced that that Atlantis okay. existed. Mm-hmm. The the thing that I have never been able to buy, the thing that has never made sense to me, the claim that you get from the sort of official version of history, okay. We know that there have been human beings, members of our species, Homo sapiens, for like two million years. And yet the official version, they they sat around twiddling their thumbs until 5,000 years ago. And then all of a sudden popped up and started building cities, invented writing, invented astronomy, and, 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 you know, and here we are. Right. This makes no sense. No. What, you know, so what were they doing during the other one million nine hundred and ninety five thousand years i don't think they were just twiddling their thumbs you know tapping rocks against each other what were they doing the occult theory has it that this is the fifth major cycle of civilization kind of like the hopi yeah uh, exactly exactly that's what i believe too yeah, you, you read you, if you read the old occult literature, there was the Polarian civilization, there was the Hyperborean civilization, there was the Lemurian civilization, there's the Atlantean civilization, and there's us. Yeah. So, you know, and each of these civilizations rose and developed and achieved whatever it could achieve, and then wound down and declined, and you know, we ended up most um, population dropped way off, and you ended up with a long period of, of you know people just struggling to survive and then out of that another one rose so that's the theory um it makes more sense to me than the official version just because it explains what people were doing well they were building civilizations it's just those civilizations rose and fell and you know then we have we have some ice ages we have the melting of the ice ages all of these things that destroyed a lot of real estate or flooded it Mm -hmm. and yeah yeah, and and that's what makes all this uh, archaeological paperwork such an issue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, can you imagine the paperwork you would need to do an excavation off the coast? You've got the Endangered Species Act. You've got the water, the various water pollution legislation. You've got the the UN Law of the Sea. It would be a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I did find it just recently. I found a Russian submarine for sale, a nuclear submarine for seven million. Oh, there we go. <laughs> I was thinking this well, might be a good investment. <laughs> I can see. There you go. The, the one challenge is you need first of all you need to know enough Russian to figure out what the control panel meant. There's got to be a okay. YouTube video for it. <laughs> <laughs> Running a Russian submarine for fun and profit, and then of course you need you need to get a crew because I promise you you're not going to be able to run a submarine single handed. <laughs> uh, I, I could get the crew. I can. I can get I some of my the, listeners no, would love to. The, the, <laughs> honestly, I think if you announced that you had just purchased a, a submarine and were uh, painted bright yellow, by the way, yes, <laughs> <laughs> painted bright yellow, and you're inviting everybody to come join you and sail a yellow submarine in search of Atlantis, <laughs> <laughs> I think you'll get takers. <laughs> So it was as good as my idea for running for president. <laughs> hey, there we, why not do both of them? <laughs> right after I fire myself. <laughs> exactly. After you fire yourself, buy a Russian submarine and go from there. <laughs> yeah. I, I, might, I might have the money to after I fire myself. <laughs> yeah. Get your first paycheck. 
This is becoming a linear plan now. Oh, yeah, there we go. <laughs> I see the future opening before you. <laughs> I knew if anybody could see my future, it would be you. <laughs> well, many, many years, it, well, yeah, many years ago now, um, in, back in 2003, when I more or less by accident ended up as the head of a druid order. I called up the only other person I knew who had ever had that happen to them. And it doesn't happen to people now and again. Um, I call, got in touch with Philip Cargom and was going, Philip, what do I do? Help! And what he, his response has, it has been my guiding, my guiding um, principle ever since. He said, well, the first thing you need to do, John, is to have fun. <laughs> so I offer you these words of wisdom from an arch druid. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> uh, you know, I kind of somebody I did a podcast appearance about a week ago, and mm -hmm. the guy asked me, um, "What would you tell your fifteen-year-old self?" And my mm -hmm. answer was, "I would say." I was was have as much fun as possible. Enjoy this all the sex and drugs and rock and roll you possibly can. <laughs> and that's actually what I did anyway. So. <laughs> Maybe you did talk to your fifteen year old self. This is very possible. <laughs> I created a loop. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, thank you for coming on today. It's always fun. Well, you're talking very to you. welcome. <laughs> I guess this this has been a lot of fun, and I, I look forward to voting for you when you run for president. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> and, um, I will be looking for a running mate. <laughs> I, I'm I'm not in the running. I just find 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 um find somebody young and cute. That always helps. You know, I would like that. I mean, that's one of the things that bothers me about politics too. Is like all these people are old. I would love mm -hmm. to see somebody. Much, I would love to see the whole thing run by much younger people because mm -hmm. this is going to be their idea. country next. Exactly. Get these old people out of here. Yeah, you see, they, they, yeah, well, you know, a lot, <laughs> I'm speaking of my generation here, a lot of boomers do not want to admit that they are past it. They have had their time. They failed. <laughs> they did a lousy job. Now it's time for them to head for the retirement home and let someone else try to clean up the mess. Yes. But tried, boomers do not want... They, the, the, my, my generation is fixated. They have this messianic sense that we're the salvation of the world. No, they, you know, and they don't want to deal with the fact that, no, they're not the salvation of anything. They sold out. They blew it. You know, off to the off to the retirement home, uh, Brandon. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go, Brandon. <laughs> well, we we got everybody except Keith Richards. You can't send him to the retirement home. Yet. No, and I know he. I can say we can we can make we can make a few exceptions. Yeah, he's definitely my <laughs> exception. <laughs> so before we wrap it up, where is the best place for my listeners to find you? Okay, um, the best place for me to be found is on my blog, which is ecosophia, E-C-O-S-O-P-H-I-A dot net. Um, I post there every Wednesday. It is weird. Um, you can find my books um, in your, your favorite neighborhood bookstore. They'll, they can order anything I have in print, or you can use the various electronics, uh, the, the various online stores. Um, if you're into bookshop.org, I highly recommend. I have a bookshop there. If you look for John Michael Greer, you will find me there. Awesome. And do you have any new projects coming up that you want to plug? Oh, yeah. 
Oh yeah, I have just I've just released. I, I mentioned my novels. Right. I've done. I, I did a series. It turned into a series a series of eleven novels, set in H.P. Lovecraft Cthulhu mythos stood on its head. The tentacled horrors are the good guys. Awesome. And so that's been out for a little. Those are the last one of those came out a little while ago. But a project de- derived from it, um, a role playing game. Really? Based on it, it's called Weird of Hali, uh, role playing the other side of the Cthulhu mythos. It has it, the long delays, mostly due to the pandemic, the supply chain problems. Mm-hmm. But it is now available. It's it's it is um, the PDF version. It should be available either today or tomorrow, uh, depending on fine details. The print version will be out shortly. Um, I played a lot of role-playing games uh, back in the day. I mean, I played Dungeons & Dragons back when it was three staple-bound booklets. <laughs> and I played a lot of other things, and a lot of that fed into this. But it is a it is a role-playing game set in the Cthulhu mythos that you do you have never seen before, where the tentacle horrors are your friends, and a cult of, of mad rationalists, uh, a secret society, in fact, of mad rationalists are the enemy. And it's it, it it's a wild. That is brilliant. Uh, that's, that's just out now. Um, let's see. And then I have a, bo- a new book on Druidry called The Druid Path, which will be out in, I think, February. Now it was going to be January, but again, supply chain stuff bounced back. Mm-hmm. Uh, my book Monsters is being reprinted for Halloween. That should be out. Excellent. And let's see. Is there anything else? Oh, yeah. Um, I did many years ago. I did a divination deck called the Sacred Geometry Oracle. Unfortunately, I did not have control over the artwork. I've never been the, able to the, find this. The original publisher did the artwork, and it sucked rocks, uh-huh. <clears throat> to use an old-fashioned phrase. Fortunately, it is now being reprinted. It should be out um, probably in early December. The oh, Sacred Geometry Oracle. You have, and you have to send me a link to that because I'm, I will I'm make, so I, I will into make Sacred sure. Geometry. Um, yeah, um, get, get Sarah, get, get my wife, your, um, your mailing address. And I will see if we can get you a copy of the deck. First, I got to get a mailing address. Yeah. Yeah. As soon as you get a new mailing address in, in, in New Jersey, <laughs> yes. um, let her know and we will see if I can, I'll see if I can get it on its way to you. Fantastic. I, I love that stuff. I just did an episode actually on, um, the idea that the universe is nothing but, um, mathematical mm-hmm. computations. There, there was a guy named Pythagoras who lived about two thousand five hundred years I've ago. Who had yeah. that? Who? Yeah, you've heard of him. That was his take. Yeah, he may have been onto something. I mean, I think he was onto that, something. That may be at least be part of the puzzle. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you again, and thank you for having me on. And hang on for one second, and it's going to play sure. the outro.